Today we're going to be in Luke chapter 22, starting with verse 1. The last time we saw the parable of the fig tree and a digression on the three Ps of Israel, her past, her present, and her in prophecy. Today we're going to talk about the betrayal of Christ and the implications of the Passover celebration with undertones of the difference, the stark contrast between Jesus and Judas. Verse 1. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. So he went his way and he conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. Then he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. Passover or Pesach in the Hebrew is covered in Exodus 12, Leviticus 23, and also Numbers 28. And I'll give you a brief overview of some of the feasts at that time because this, we're going to see this uh, New Testament implications there. Okay, we see the carryover into the New Testament. On the 10th day of Nisan, the Jewish month of Nisan, you were to take for yourself an unblemished lamb. On the 14th day of Nisan, which would be our March or April, depending on their lunar calendar, you would kill the lamb at twilight, put the blood on the doorposts, and also the lintel, which we know as the cross piece or the header of the door. In Exodus 12:23, it says that the Lord will see the blood and not allow the destroyer to kill the firstborn, which was the last of the tenth, ten plagues in Egypt, as long as the home was covered by blood. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, Hag Hamatzah, was from the 15th of Nisan until the 21st of Nisan. And you couldn't eat bread with leaven or what we know as yeast. By the first century, unleavened bread was synonymous with Passover. They ran concurrent. And then you had your offerings of the first fruits. And, and Josh so fared when Jews for Jesus came out, did a really good job of explaining it. But it's, it's, it's important to know the order of how things happen. The first fruits, after the Passover, it was the first Sunday. So if the Passover fell on a Wednesday, it would be that Sunday would be the first fruits. Yom Habakorim. Okay? And 50 days after the first fruits was the Feast of Pentecost or Shavuot, which what happened was the first fruits was the, the barley harvest, and you would give God of your first fruits an offer of thankfulness and gratitude. And then 50 days later on Shavuot, or what we know as Pentecost, you had the wheat harvest. And the same thing, you would give God uh, thanks and praise and uh, an offering for, uh, for the first fruits that you got of the harvest. Now, what I see in this is the first fruits after the Passover, that first Sunday, Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday. And the first fruits was really the first fruits of the resurrection from the dead. Jesus, the Bible tells us, is the first fruits of the resurrection from the dead. Fifty days later at Pentecost, when the disciples were all gathered together, another first fruits of sort, the Holy Spirit was given. So you kind of see. The old, everything in the Old Testament really comes out in the New Testament. It was all types back then and symbolisms for what was to come, the fulfillment here. The, um, they, they celebrated, the Jewish people celebrated and still do celebrate on Pentecost that 
the law was given. Tradition says that Moses gave the law on Pentecost. But what's interesting is what we know through the Holy Spirit giving on Pentecost was grace was given. So the Bible tells us, man, this stuff is just replete with, with, with um, it's pregnant with meaning, so to speak. But what it had was, you had the law, which was our tutor. It was a mirror. It showed us ourselves. It showed us that we did things wrong. And it brought us to that point where grace would now take over. The law was good for a time. It served a purpose. But when Jesus came, grace came and the Holy Spirit came. Now, if you count back from the 14th of Nisan, uh, back the, to the 10th, you have the procurement of the unblemished lamb. If you count four days back from the crucifixion of Jesus, it appears that you come to the triumphal entry. Now, there's a different reckoning in time between what we see as time, our times. 12.01 starts the new day, 12 midnight, and then 01, you know, right after that, it starts the next day. Then you had the Roman reckoning of time, uh, which I believe was sunrise to sunrise, and then the Jewish reckoning of time was sundown to sundown. Okay, so we're going to go into that next week, okay, but just suffice to say that you can see the triumphal entry kind of coinciding with that procurement of the Lamb. On that day, Jesus fulfilled Daniel 9.25's prophecy to the day, and Jesus also presented himself at the same time as the Lamb to be sacrificed in that triumphal entry. So, you're supposed to, in the law, you're supposed to get yourself a lamb. Jesus brought himself as the lamb to the people, the sacrificial lamb. So he fulfilled many roles. He was the messianic king. He was uh, God incarnate. He had to be, to be the perfect sacrifice. And also, he was, the, he was the high priest who offered the sacrifice, who offered himself. Jesus says, no man takes my life, but I lay it down for the sheep. So Passover is a type of Christ. Um, Again, the unblemished lamb was a picture of the sinless Christ. When people have a problem with the deity of Christ, but they understand most of the Bible, they're not understanding it well because uh, the, even there was a story about the red heifer. If you look in the Old Testament, there was the red heifer, and uh, when the red heifer was born, it was a red cow, basically. And they had to burn the cow and take the ashes and use it in the service of the priesthood. Well, apparently, because over in Israel, they're, they're contemplating the next... Uh, temple and the next sacrificial system, they found a red heifer. But recently, supposedly, the priests poured over that heifer and all the red hairs on that cow. And they found like three white hairs on that cow's tail, so they couldn't use that heifer. It was not perfect. Do you see the imagery? In the Old Testament, the lamb couldn't have a, a defected leg or a runny eye or anything wrong with it. It had to be a perfect lamb, always giving God your best. Now, Jesus had to be God because none of us could have sacrificed ourselves even for ourselves because we're not good enough, we're not perfect. So Jesus had to come as that perfect sacrifice. So the slaying of the lamb and the blood staving off the punishment of death in the Passover was a picture of Jesus shedding his blood to save us from punishment. Leviticus 17:11 again. And I'll read it. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. And I'm leading up to something. Passover, the feast of deliverance from slavery in Egypt, in Christ becomes emblematic of deliverance from the slavery of sin. The feast of unleavened bread, the feast where you purged leaven, in Christ becomes a situation where you can purge the sin from your life. 
in Pentecost or first fruits, the feast where you thanked God for your provisions, in Christ becomes emblematic of thanking God for the provisions of the Holy Spirit. So what you see is a few things in here. Through, through the Passover, through Christ being the Passover, we don't have to be in slavery to sin anymore. We've been delivered, okay, through the blood of Christ, the feast of unleavened bread. We now have the ability in Christ to purge ourselves from those sins. And also, Pentecost, the giving of the Holy Spirit. How do we do those things? Well, before we were Christians, most likely we looked forward to sinning. You know, we would plan out our little sin schedules, right? Okay, was it just me? <laughs> but now that we're in Christ, we, we have uh, a new nature. And when we sin, it bothers us, it grieves us. We, we war, the spirit wars against the flesh, and the flesh wars against the spirit. But now we have the power, instead of giving into it, through the Holy Spirit, we have the power to deny that sin. Every day we could make a choice if sin is there and it draw, it, we're being drawn to it, to say no through the power of the Holy Spirit. So you see the implications there. You see how much Jesus went through to save us all from the punishment of sin. I've heard people say, if you were the only person on earth, Jesus would have still died for your sins. And you know what? I believe that. And the Bible says that we love him. Why? Because we're great and we're appreciative? No. The Bible says it's because he first loved us. He showed his love first. He put out the olive branch first, and we responded to it. Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Nobody, nobody comes to the Father except through me. You can't do it another way. Don't count his sacrifice as some small thing. Unfortunately, many people try to find another way to get into heaven. Somebody, the biggest scam in, in, of the ages was somebody coming up with the idea that we don't have to listen to what God's word says anymore. All we have to do is have our good works outweigh our bad works and we'll be fine. Not only does that not work, but it wouldn't work in our jurisprudence system. I've seen, as a police officer for many years, many shoplifting cases go before the courts. Part of the job is to testify in court. And I've never seen this defense out of all the shoplifting cases I've seen. I've never seen somebody go before the judge and say, Your Honor, I've been shopping at this place for 10 years, 99 times in a row. I paid for my merchandise. I gave them good money. But the hundredth time... I, I took something. I put it in my pocket. So could you please let me go because the 99 times I paid for this stuff. Well, if an attorney tried to put that forth, he certainly wouldn't be in business for very long. But it's the same thing. If we can't pull this off with a human judge, why do we think we can pull it off with God? So the question is, where is your standing before God? Everybody here, where is your standing as an individual? When Adam was in the garden and he sinned, God came into the garden and he said, Adam, where are you? Does that mean all of a sudden Adam was hiding really well and God couldn't see him? No, that's ridiculous. God was saying, Adam, where are you? Where is your heart? I, I sense there's something different in our relationship. Adam, what happened? Talk to me. I love you. So the question to all of us that we have to ask ourselves is, where are we with God? 
This whole good works thing is, is, is a scam. That's like, again, I like to bring, because the Bible says it, parallel the relationship with a relationship with a spouse. Obviously, God is on a much higher level, but you can see the parallels in relationship issues. It's not about good works. If you put that into a marriage, you just do things for people. That's like if I'm married and I just, I don't want to talk to my wife, but I just take out the credit card and say, here, go shopping. Well, that might work for a while. She might like that. But eventually, if I don't talk to her and all I want to do is throw things at her, that's the same thing with us and God. We just throw good works at him. He wants our heart. He wants a relationship with us. So what, what are you counting on for your eternal retirement plan? What Adam separated, what Adam ruined in our relationship with God, Jesus came as the last Adam to repair. And the only way to get to the Father is to get through the Son. In verse 2, it says, The chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. The Sanhedrin at the time, the, uh, the body of, of priests and aristocrats and leaders of the people, was just fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. It's amazing how many times in the scripture you can see sovereignty versus free will. The sovereignty was God's orchestrating of events. He already prophesied that Jesus would be betrayed. He already prophesied that his own countrymen would turn on him. However, these men used their free will because they were motivated by jealousy, power, and hatred to, to harm him, to take him out of the picture. The ironic thing is the crime of eternity was being planned during the time commemorating deliverance from Egypt, or what we can see symbolically is deliverance from sin. Purge the leaven. They all took the leaven out of their homes, a picture of removing sin. The Passover coming, right? Deliverance. The plan was to have Jesus arrested and obliterated before anyone caught on. In Psalm 69, which Jesus has quoted in another uh, passage, it says, those, those who hated me without a cause are more than the hairs on my head. He, there were so many of them. So we have many villains in this story. Satan, we see, is in here. The Romans, the religious leaders, Judas. And, uh, you know, they're all in there. But those who want to blame someone for Jesus' death, and you hear the debate, who killed Jesus? Was it the religious leaders? Was it the Romans? Was it the Jewish people? But you know what? Those who want to blame someone else for Jesus' death all, all they need to do is to look in the mirror. And that includes me. I say that again. Anyone who wants to blame anyone for Jesus' death only needs to look into the mirror. Because we all put him there. We all led him to the cross. And it's more than just a little trite saying. You've heard that before. Oh, we all put Jesus on the cross. But it's true. Because of our sin, we put God in a difficult position. God demands purity. God demands a, this ultimate standard, which is his standard. And because of the, our parents, our first parents sinning, uh, it's been carried on through the generations. And he had a dilemma. How do I reconcile myself with this creation? He could have just kind of blown us up and started all over again. But he didn't do that. He put Jesus into the world. Jesus came as God in the flesh, uh, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died a sacrificial death. And three days later, he rose from the dead in fulfillment of the scriptures. He took our sins and bore them as the sacrifice. They made Jesus the scapegoat. Leviticus 16, there's a portion of scripture where they would take, and you see all these types of Jesus. They would take, the priests would take two goats and they would cast lots. 
and the one goat would be taken and be sacrificed. The other one, what the priest would do is he would lay his hands on the head of the goat and he would confess all the sins of Israel onto that goat, figuratively taking the sins of the people and putting them onto the head of the goat. And then he would send the goat into the wilderness, into a desolate place never to be seen again. So how many more pictures do we need to see of these types of Christ removing our sin? We all made Jesus the scapegoat. It's funny how many uh, phrases and sayings come from the scripture that we try to erase in our society today. The scapegoat comes right from the Bible. Excruciating pain, excruciatus, comes from the pain of the cross. Uh, Am I my brother's keeper? So, I mean, I can go on and on about all the different uh, phrases and concepts that we get from scripture. In verse 3, Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who is numbered among the twelve. Satan will also enter the Antichrist to come, as he has with many Antichrists in the past, according to 1 John. But it's a willing participation. Before I was a a Christian, I was really, for some reason, obsessed with vampire movies. And I was like an expert on vampire movies. Talk about useless information. The garlic thing and the, the steak and... But one of the things that I um, remember about vampire movies was, and the ones that I saw anyway, was the vampire couldn't come into your house unless you invited him in. Now, he could be seductive. He could deceive you into inviting him into your home, but he couldn't come in unless he was invited. And I kind of, I don't know why I'm thinking of Satan and I think of vampire movies, but Satan kind of operates the same way. Satan has to be invited into your life. He'll knock on the window, he'll send you a love letter, he'll say, I'm going to do all these great things for you, but you have to invite him in. And once you invite him in, he'll enter anyone who will have him. Name your price. What can you be bought for? He will promise you the world, but leave you destitute and lost as he did with Judas. And that's always the case with sin. Sin is the same way. It looks attractive. Well, I don't, I don't have that. that. That looks good. Wait, God's word says it's wrong, but it really looks good. And if I just partake of it once, maybe it's not so bad. And then you partake of it once and you become a little desensitized. And then you do it again and again. And before you know it, you're, you're, you're totally enwrapped with this, with this sin. And that's what sin does. It looks good. It feels good for a time. And when you're in it, you think, well, why does God's word say that? This isn't such a bad thing, but it leaves you high and dry. When it's over, then you your spouse, your kids, the people you've witnessed to, your church, everyone has to pick up the pieces for your sin because you got involved with it. So that's the way sin is and that's the way Satan is. But what's interesting is you have Jesus, selfless, compassion, sacrificial, generous with his time, everything that you would want to see in ministry. And then you have Judas, the exact opposite. You know what's scary? Judas was one of the twelve. Judas was with Jesus for three years. Wait a minute. Judas heard all the teachings. Judas probably went out in pairs when the disciples were sent out in pairs, right? Judas no doubt saw the miracles, and probably Judas may have even partaken in one of the miracles. Wow. Where am I going with this? You don't get to heaven through osmosis or contact with other people. Do you go to church? Are you married to a believing spouse? Have you heard the word of God before? Where does your heart 
stand with the Lord. Do you think because you're around Christian people and the Word and you, you just come to church once in a while because a family member twisted your arm, that this stuff is going to rub off on you? That by some way in contact, it's going to, it's going to, you're going to have that relationship and you're going to become saved? I had a discussion a few years back with a, a pastor's kid. And he actually, when he spoke to me, he really thought that he was going to go to heaven no matter what he did because his dad was a pastor. Those pastor's kids, man, they get such a bad reputation, don't they? My poor son is in double trouble. He's a pastor's kid and a cop's kid. (laughs) Pray for him, please. But if if that's what you're banking on, that because you're around somebody who's saved and you don't have to have that relationship and it's just going to kind of rub off on you and when you die you're going to be good, don't bank on it because you'll be in the same boat or the same lake as Judas. And it's love for me to tell you, it's love for me to tell you, I'm not trying to give anybody a hard time, it's love for me to tell you, you need to have your own relationship with Jesus Christ. That's love. It's not love to just see somebody going down the wrong path and they're, they're walking backwards. Actually, I was on a construction job um, when I was in college and I remember one of the guys I worked with, uh, we were framing, we were framers, framed the first floor and uh, the basement, there was a big hole and there were steps, le- or there was supposed to be steps, but there was no steps yet. And I remember I was framing and I looked, I talked to my friend, I looked back and something in my mind said, he was walking backwards towards the hole. And before I could get out, turn around to say something, he fell in the hole. And he broke his arm, and it was really awful. But I tried. <laughs> I just wasn't quick enough. But if you see somebody that's going to fall, if you see somebody that's going to ruin their whole lives, if you see somebody that's on a collision path to, to damnation, it's love to tell them that they need the truth. It's love to explain the truth to them. It's not love to just ignore it because you don't want the confrontation. So, you know, you can rub elbows with people, you can have your house or your business blessed, you could help the church leadership, but the bottom line is you must respond to the individual call of God. Jesus said, if I am lifted up, I draw all peoples to myself. God draws us all, but it's up to us to to say, you know what, he's right, and let that word sink down into your heart. I want to read another passage, Matthew 7, 21. Matthew 7:21. He says, "Not everyone who says to me, "Lord, Lord," shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven." Many will say to me in that, door, in that day, "Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name?" And then I will declare to them, "I never knew you." Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I think this scripture is an enigma to a lot of people. But wait a minute. What what is the Father's will? They're prophesying. They're casting out demons. They're doing many works. Isn't that the Father's will? Uh, It's confusing to some people. Well, let's read further. Jesus says, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall for it was founded on the rock. Now everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. 
and the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. What is the will of the Father? Well, the will of the Father is to have a foundation in Christ. It's to have that relationship with Jesus Christ. Just because you're doing things, calling yourself a Christian, or doing things seemingly that Christians would do, and, and kind of playing the part doesn't mean anything. It's that relationship that's what's important. So I think about Judas, and I think about this scripture. So what's more frightening was Judas, think about this, was in ministry. Did you ever think of that? Judas was in ministry. And look what happened. Some people are in, in ministry for the wrong reasons. Could be for title, could be for prestige, it could be for glory, it could be for money. Some in ministry have a lack of love for people. Some in ministry don't keep their word. Some in ministry set a bad example. Whenever Christianity becomes a business or a job and not a calling, that's when all kinds of vices creep in. Christian, get your eyes off of man and put them on the Lord Jesus Christ. If there's anything I can say to kind of bring this home, it's get your eyes off of man. It's not about the man. We are just instruments. Uh, Pastor Lloyd uses this, the, um, the example of a surgeon with a scalpel. You never would praise the scalpel when a great operation is done. You would praise the, the surgeon because he's the, one, he's the brains behind how the scalpel moves. We in ministry are just scalpels. The one to be praised is the Lord Jesus Christ. If you show me a Christian who idolizes the man of God, I will show you a Christian who collapses when the man of God falls. And I don't think pastors do a good enough job of taking the focus off of themselves and putting it onto the Lord. But here's the good news. Let's take all that and bring it home because some people may say, gee, it seems like it's hard to become a Christian. No, it's not. Uh, if you're married, you, you know, I've been with my wife for 15 years. I love her. When I go home, it's not hard for me to have a relationship with her. I just, we, we talk about things. We do things together. It just comes naturally. It's the same thing with you and God. So if you have that relationship with Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, don't worry about what I said. If you don't, you need to pray about receiving Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And once you have that relation, Jesus, Jesus said that when they're in my hands, no one can snatch them out of my hands. No one can pull a relationship, uh, your relationship away from you. Okay, in verse 5, it says, And they were glad and agreed to give him money. They agreed to give Judas money. In Matthew 26, it says that Jesus was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave, according to Zechariah 11:12. What's ironic about, about the paltry amount that Jesus was betrayed for, the price of a slave is, if you think about it, a, so much imagery in here. A slave puts his interests below everyone else's. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus put his interests, his life, his career, his future below the Father's will and below the benefit for us. Verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. So they said to him, where do you want us to prepare? In verse 9 they knew that this would be impossible to do at the last minute. Remember, it's the Passover season. That's sort of like if you could bring it today. That's like on New Year's Eve, me telling one of you, 
hey, go get reservations at a hotel so we can have a little, little get-together there. There's no reservations at a hotel. You've got to book those things month, months in advance. So there's the, the equivalent there. But you had to make uh, reservations prior as Jerusalem was swelling to over millions of people. As Passover is one of the feasts that the uh, Jewish males were required to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for, as well as booths or Sukkot and Pentecost. That's why when you read the book of Acts, when Peter is preaching in the square, you have all these people from Elam, from, um, from the Scythians, from Asia, from people all over the world were listening to Peter's sermon, and so many people got saved in that day because it was Pentecost. Same thing, it was the pilgrimage to, into uh, the Jerusalem area. Verse 10, And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. Then you shall say to the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished room, upper room, there make ready. So they went and found it as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. Well, again, it's a bizarre request because, number one, it's done at the last minute. Number two, in that culture... The males didn't, um, the men didn't go to the well to draw water. That was the woman's job. That's just, don't, don't get upset with me. That's just the way they did it back then. And the, the men probably didn't take out the garbage either. I don't know. But the third thing it was a little bizarre was for, was because um, he, Jesus is asking them to find this guy among thousands of people. As soon as you walk into Jerusalem, there's people everywhere. How are we going to find this guy? So think about the difficulty of, of the command. But it shows two things. Number one, how God orchestrates every move on the chessboard, so to speak. That's kind of cool. I feel comforted knowing that all the moves on the chessboard of life are orchestrated. He sees the future. And two, how we should respond to God in trust. In God we trust. They may take off our currency, but in God we trust never goes out of style. So, Jesus knew when they would enter the city. He knew who he wanted them to meet. He also, um, as having them fetch the donkey, remember prior to the triumphal entry, they said the same thing, go and you'll find the colt, and uh, he explained the whole thing to them. It was, was it prearranged? Did the spirit just move the caretakers? Or did um, Jesus have like this clairvoyance to their receptivity? And it, it just happened on the spur of the moment. I don't know. But in the same token, Jesus knows that your mortgage is due. Jesus knows that your child is sick. Jesus knows that your spouse isn't saved. And Jesus knows that your boss has it in for you. He knows all these things. And the second thing is the disciples didn't argue or say, are you sure? They just did what they were told. God desires our obedience over all. How often do we do what we're told when God asks us to do something or do we delay do we talk ourselves out of it? You know, like when God is, is directing you to do something, he puts it on your heart, and you kind of say, well, now, was that God or was that me? And you kind of do the self-talk thing, and before you know it, you missed a blessing. You missed an opportunity, right? We can do that to ourselves. Whenever we pull away from his plan, what we're really saying to God is, I don't trust you. I mean, that's what we're saying implicitly. It's implied. When God gives us something to do, he, he, he plans our lives, and we... We don't trust him or we, we don't do it. It's because what we're saying is, God, I don't trust you with my kids, with my spouse, with my career, with my future, 
with my health, whatever it is, we're saying implicitly, I don't trust you. Fill in the blanks. So Jesus and Judas, two men whose hearts intentions were diametrically opposed to one another. Jesus refused to accept any other means of the promise of the kingdoms of the world except through the cross. He had his opportunity in the beginning to do it the easy way, but Jesus would not accept any other way to become Lord of all the kingdoms except through the cross. He always submitted to the Father's will. He was always cognizant that his short earthly life would end in the most humiliating death known to mankind through no fault of his own. Knowing he was the embodiment of the Passover sacrifice. That's why God chose Jesus. That's why God didn't choose one of you or me to do this. First of all, we weren't, we're not capable of doing it. But second of all, we, will, we all would have backed out. I would say, you know what, Lord, I love my congregation, but not that much. <laughs> Pick somebody else. So God chose Jesus because Jesus was the most faithful and Jesus followed through, and Jesus put everyone else's uh, needs above his. So Jesus was a picture of selfless, a selfless life lived according to the Spirit. Now Judas, on the other hand, had, a, had an appearance and a form of religion. 2 Timothy 3, our minds of that scripture, it talks about in the last days, people will have a form of godliness but deny the power. Judas had a form or an appearance of religiosity, but he had no heart change. He was a self-centered guy. The Bible tells us that Judas was in charge of the treasury. He was in charge of the money. And he would often, you know, pilfer from it. He would take the money for himself at times. The Bible records that. Why did he betray Jesus? Well, there's a lot of theories. It's possible that he wanted Jesus to come in that blaze of glory, as really all the disciples did. And when he found out that it wasn't going to happen like that, um, it, it bothered him. It's a possibility that, you know, he was the treasurer. Maybe he felt if Jesus came in a blaze of glory, he could be an important position. He can go from the treasurer to become an important dignitary. But you know what I see there? I see ambition, and not a good ambition. I see, and there's some people in ministry that have that ambition. It's not about the people. It's not about the message of the gospel. It's not about any altruistic reason, but some in ministry have this ambition, and it's a way for them to elevate themselves and to bring themselves up through the gospel. And I think Judas was ambitious, but it's just a theory. When Judas found out that Jesus, the way Jesus was going out, he didn't want to partake in those sufferings. No way, man. The cross, and then they're going to persecute us? This is where I draw the line. I'm out of here. You know? And he went to the religious leaders. Whatever Judas's issues were, they weren't in harmony with God's plan. Judas was a picture of the flesh. Either way, the end of Judas's earthly life was characterized by tragedy and internal conflict. And you know what? That's the way everyone's life will end when they reject Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Tragedy and conflict. The difference between Judas and Jesus was huge. One spent his whole life in pursuit of his own interests. The other spent his whole life in pursuit of the interests of the entire human race. One died an ignominious death, only to be despised by all generations to come. The other died a death symbolizing hope for mankind for all of eternity. It doesn't take a lot of smarts, doesn't take a lot of careful study to decide which one we would want to emulate. Let's pray.
Savior.